0: Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co.
1: For today's show and tell, I present my phone. It's made with glass and various metals I can't pronounce. It's powered by Xfinity Mobile, so my family saves big. Take a handout. Colin, what are these? I'm quizzing the class
0: on the material. Switch to Xfinity Mobile and save hundreds a year with the best price for two lines of unlimited. Just $30 a line a month. Visit xfinitymobile.com to learn more. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Unlimited Intro Service and Xfinity Internet required. Taxes and fees extra. Reduced speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage. Data thresholds may vary.
1: This is a crowd podcast.
2: That was when I saw what I recognised as a, as a fighter-bomber, and it was dropping bombs in slow motion, as it happened. <laughs> it's just the way that it looked at the time. And um, that was a sort of WTF moment, really. And then it clicks in your brain, oh, fuck, they're bombing the airport. After their overnight invasion,
3: Iraqi troops and tanks are tightening their grip on Kuwait.
4: There was this screeching noise, and it was so strong; it felt like a rocket.
3: Iraqi troops crossed the border during the night, and by breakfast time, they'd seized key installations like the airport and radio stations.
5: That was really the moment where you realize, oh my God, this is not the holiday I had hoped for, and uh, you kind of start this first sinking in of, oh my God, I'm I'm really in the wrong place.
1: I, I really something's going drastically wrong here. Somebody, for some reason, wanted that aeroplane to land, and we did.
6: It's August the 1st, 1990, and a British Airways passenger plane carrying 385 people has just landed in Kuwait as Saddam Hussein's Iraqi army is invading. Troops have surrounded the airport and the runway is being bombed. The passengers are about to find themselves at the center of a hostage crisis and at the heart of one of the biggest cover-ups in modern history. My name is Stephen Davis. I'm an investigative journalist and I've been covering the story for 30 years to reveal the truth behind why these passengers were flown into a war zone and into the hands of a brutal dictator. In this series, you'll hear directly from those who were there, the men, women and children who were held hostage and used as human shields by the Iraqi regime. Over the years, I've conducted over 200 interviews with the human shields, their families, soldiers, politicians and secret agents. I've had access to confidential information, the unpublished diaries of American and British hostages and talked to survivors, and grieving relatives. Along the way, I've sat in a living room listening to a young woman describe how she repeatedly tried to take her life because she never recovered from her ordeal. Heard harrowing stories of rapes, assaults, and mock executions. And I've interviewed soldiers at the heart of the most secret part of the British government who risked their livelihoods and their freedom to reveal the truth. This is a story full of deception, deceit, and denials. It's the toughest story I've ever worked on. There are people out there who don't want me to tell it. Governments who want it buried and forgotten. To be honest, it nearly broke me. I've been the target of disinformation and sabotage, and I very nearly gave up. But this story is too important to give up on. It's personal and political. It reads like a movie script, and yet it really happened. This is the secret history of Flight 149. Iraq's battle-trained army, the most powerful force in the Middle East, swept across Kuwait's borders at first light.
7: We're in trouble. We are under attack. Do not call us. Do not come and see us. Do not leave where you are.
5: I really thought they were going to take us and shoot us in the desert somewhere, and I,
2: I thought this is it. Your daily reality is the fact that at any moment a bomb could come through and hit us, or at any moment when the guard comes along, he might just pull out his gun and shoot you in the back of the head.
1: Why wasn't that British Airways uh, a flight that was allowed to land in Kuwait five hours after the invasion had taken place, why wasn't it warned and allowed to be diverted?
4: This is something that everybody we've turned to has denied. And at some point, someone's got to listen, someone's got to sit up, and I don't care who it is, but someone's got to take account for what's happened.
6: British Airways Flight 149 left London Heathrow at 7pm local time on the 1st of August, 1990. Its final destination was Malaysia via Madras, with a refuelling stop in Kuwait. It was carrying passengers from all over the world, including the UK, the US, New Zealand, France and Germany. 24-year-old Barry Manners was travelling with his partner, Anthony. They were on their way to visit Antony's family in Kuala Lumpur. They had chosen to fly BA, as they felt it was the safest and best airline. They knew the plane was due to refuel in Kuwait, but trusted they'd be diverted if there were any issues. Bowie was looking out the plane window
2: when the explosion started. My first thought was, fuck, I'm sitting on a bomb here. I went immediately to Anthony. I was very conscious of the fact that we had just been refueled. And I was in a panic to get him off that plane. I just said, get the fuck off. And I forced him to get off the plane. He insisted thank God he insisted, on taking his hand luggage with him.
6: What was in uh, Anthony's hand luggage
2: that was so important? His medication. This was before any really effective treatment to slow down the progression of HIV.
6: 22-year-old Jenny Gill was travelling with her brother and sister. They were heading on their summer holidays to Malaysia. Jenny had got off the plane to stretch her legs while it was being refuelled. She watched events unfold from the terminal...
4: Before we knew it, the passengers that were in the aircraft were screaming and rushing out of the aircraft. And we we're standing there going, Oh my God, what the hell's just happened? My brother came running out and we sort of shouted out for him. We're here, we're here. And um, I said, What happened? What's that? I said, Did you hear that noise? He goes, Did you hear that noise? I said, We heard that noise, we saw what it was, you know? And he said, The aircraft was shook. I said, what did they say to you? They just said, get out, get out. He goes, that's all we heard the staff say. They said, leave your belongings, just get out of the aircraft, quick.
6: One of the youngest passengers was Gregor Schatz, just 17 years old, from Germany. Gregor was on his school holidays, on his way to visit his girlfriend. Like Jenny, he was also in the terminal building when the explosion started. You couldn't really run. I mean, where you going? To, the, the, the building was
5: in the middle of all the runways, the airport, and we just stood and didn't know what to do, just hoping they don't come and bomb closer to the airport itself. Uh, they were sort of doing more the around with a certain distance away from the uh, actual building, the terminal. I asked the man, um, "Excuse me." Where exactly is Kuwait? I mean, I know it's the Middle East, but I really, in my ignorance, I just didn't even know exactly where it is. And I felt like if I'm about to get bombed here in this building, I wanted to know where I'm actually dying.
6: You may well be wondering how on earth this could happen. Didn't the authorities have an idea that Iraqi troops were about to invade? Surely the Foreign Office wouldn't allow people to travel to a war zone. Why wasn't the plane diverted by British Airways or Kuwaiti Air Traffic Control? These are critical questions that we'll be exploring across the series. To begin to answer them, let me take you back to earlier in the day as the crew were preparing for the flight. Cabin Services Director Clive Earthy, very experienced and famous throughout the fleet for his calm demeanour, had heard some worrying news earlier that day when he was driving to work at London Heathrow.
3: I had my radio on in the car and there was a report that the Iraqis are on the border and some reports say they are over the border. I was expecting all sorts of delays and all sorts of diversions to go into place. I did see our... Cabin crew senior security officer, and I told him of my fears. He rushed off and he came back as I was briefing my crew that the Foreign Office had said there is no problem at all. Clive wasn't the only one to hear
6: these reports. Flight attendant Helen Peters, in her 20s at the time and in love with her job, was also paying close attention as she packed her bag for the flight.
7: While I was getting ready, I was watching the news, which was reporting there were 100,000 Iraqis on the border. Um, so getting ready, I thought, you know, maybe we'd go in and they will say the flight was cancelled or we were going to be diverted. Yeah, so a bit apprehensive at first, but I, th- I was pretty sure that British Airways weren't going to be putting us into a dangerous situation. We you know we were all in the briefing room, and they said, you know, we would be monitored by via satellite. And it was mentioned that, you know, if you hang your washing outside, you know, they can they can see you doing that. So I'm sure they can see 100,000 Iraqis crossing the border, and it takes you know a number of hours for them to cross over. So. Yeah, there's not you know any sign of trouble, we would be diverted.
6: The captain was Richard Brunyate. He was one of British Airways' top pilots with 20 years' experience. He had a good understanding of the Middle East. He'd spent part of his childhood in Baghdad and had worked in Lebanon. Speaking to me back in 2007, he told me that as part of his preparations that day, he insisted on a special security briefing. A very unusual step when we got to the briefing room uh, we were given our flight plan
1: all the normal pieces of paperwork that are involved in getting a jumbo from a to b and i then asked the flight planner where the special security briefing was with regard to our particular flight and he said what security briefing and i said well haven't you heard the news there is an iraqi army about 80 kilometers away from my proposed destination so i suggest you better get it some sort of security briefing. At that point, the co-pilot and flight engineer were dispatched to the aircraft to start the pre-flight preparation for the airplane. And I said to Brian, the flight engineer, if at any time you find anything that's particularly wrong with the aircraft, insist on getting it fixed. And that gives us a bit more time to actually ascertain the situation at the other end.
6: So you were playing for time.
1: I was playing for time in the hope that we would actually receive something concrete
6: about the whole situation at the other end of of our particular flight. The flight engineer apparently did find a fault that needed fixing. The APU, or Auxiliary Power Unit, which controlled the air conditioning, wasn't working properly.
1: So Brian, the flight engineer, discovered the APU was unserviceable. They were trying to dispatch us with it unserviceable, and I said, ''No, let's get it fixed.'' which gave me a bit more breathing space to actually pick up some more information about the
3: original question about security in Kuwait. Here's Clive Earthy. There was a a problem with the aircraft. It was a genuine one. Some people have said since that it was possibly a false report, but it was not. It was definitely a genuine fault. Talking to Richard during that delay he did say several times that uh, we won't leave Clive until we are quite sure there isn't any problem en route. So in other words he was actually delaying everything (laughs) as long as he possibly could. The delay took I believe two hours roughly
6: This delay would turn out to be crucial. Clive might be sure it was a genuine fault, but not everyone agrees. We'll be talking a lot more about it as the story progresses. In any case, the plane sat on the tarmac for a couple of hours at Heathrow. But Barry Manners wasn't worried. We
2: had been given several reasons why we were late before we boarded the flight. I think we were told the runway was melting. (laughs) Then we were told something to do with an air conditioning unit. Then I think something about an APU or something, when we boarded the flight, we weren't that bothered by it. I think we were more concerned that, yes, that might mean we're going to be late for dinner when we get to Malaysia, kind of thing.
6: Once the fault with the air conditioning unit had been fixed, the passengers boarded, and the crew were making their final preparations. But just before they closed the gate, a group of men arrived at the very last minute. Here's Clive.
3: They were very late in boarding. They were seated down the back of the aircraft. I I seem to remember seven or eight of them. Just young, fit-looking men.
2: To Barry, something about them just didn't look right. They were very super-fit-looking young men who seemed to be part of a cohesive group and... uh, they were wearing what I'd kind of describe as um, they'd all been to Sports Direct, I suppose. And I just thought well, that's weird because if they were, I, I guess that they were working in an oil rig or something in in the Gulf. You know, that's what that explained the you know the Kuwait sort of thing. But the, the guys that I knew that had those jobs in you know those highly paid jobs, very highly paid back in those days, they had a bit of bling about them. They they just didn't fit in. I made an announcement
3: over the uh, PA because one or two passengers had said to me, isn't there problems in Kuwait? People in the terminal had been talking about possible problems in Kuwait. And I went on the public address and assured all my passengers that there was nothing to worry about, that if anything did happen the uh, government and the foreign office have assured us and British Airways that we will be diverted. So ladies and gentlemen please sit back and relax and enjoy the flight.
6: With the latecomers now on board most passengers were able to put any concerns about the refueling stop to one side. Here's Barry.
2: At that point we had worked out that we were going to Kuwait. And I was reading The Independent, I think it was, and I, th- I remember seeing sort of on page 11 that, that there were Iraqi troops on the Kuwaiti border, that Iraq had an army of 100,000 and Kuwait had, a, had an army of 20,000, I think was were the numbers. You know, I was naive. I was a 24-year-old, and I thought, well, we'd chosen B.A. We lived in Paris. The reason we chose B.A. was we trusted them and we travelled to London specifically to, to travel with BA. We didn't need to travel to London. So I had no fears whatsoever. I thought, well, if, if there were any issues, we, we wouldn't land. We, you know, this is British Airways. Jenny felt the same.
4: We actually saw it on the aircraft, thinking that's a bit strange and that's where we're going and that's where we're supposed to be refuelling. But I didn't think anything more of it, to be honest.
2: Anthony was getting some rest, was having a snooze, and then they came round and there was unlimited amounts of free booze. I mean, what's not to like? Gregor was also enjoying the flight. As I said, I was so full
5: of emotion and so excited and just looking out the window and just, you know, couldn't wait. And I had a thinking of things we're going to do in this month. uh, I was going to spend one month there. I was just full of pure adventure and energy.
6: As flight 149 headed to Kuwait, on the ground, it was starting to look like a war movie the peace talks aimed at resolving the dispute between Kuwait and Iraq had fallen apart. It's reported that peace talks in the Gulf have collapsed after Kuwait refused to give in to Iraq's demands for money and land. American intelligence experts estimate that around 100,000 Iraqi troops backed up by tanks and artillery have gathered near the Kuwait border. Saddam Hussein was preparing his next move his Republican guard were poised on the Kuwaiti border with tanks and missiles at the ready. According to Captain Richard Brunyate, the message he received was this, proceed as normal. We'd established that it was okay to
1: land from not only the ambassador's point of view, but also there was a message from the Foreign Office to say that British Airways are still operating in there, things were normal, don't worry. We established a long-range radio link with the airline itself so that they could either contact us it was a two-way system they had chimes on the flight deck so they could have actually ding-donged us to tell us that
6: things weren't okay. So we've got Iraqi troops preparing for action there's an open radio line between the flight deck and London and yet no warnings are being passed to the captain. We had A contact with another aircraft in flight
1: that had left Kuwait, the British Airways Tristar, when we were over Egypt. We contacted them in flight and said, what's the actual situation like? And they said, it was okay. it's it's fine, there's nothing to worry about. We contacted the airline on the VHF communications, company communications, just prior to landing to see if it was still safe to land. We used the aircraft as a lookout post. We had a good look round before we actually started the descent. There was nothing at all that appeared untoward at the destination, as far as I was concerned. We heard of no other diversions. We heard of no airport closures due to the situation in Kuwait or southern Iraq. We heard of no reason at all to go to a destination other than the one we were primed to go to. The
6: invasion had actually started several hours beforehand. And there were tanks on the outskirts of the city as you were coming in. Why do you think Kuwait air traffic control didn't warn you?
1: I now know that um, there were Iraqi troops and armour in Kuwait City as we made our approach and landing. Why we weren't told about this by the company, by the embassy via our cell call link with BA, why the Kuwaiti ATC didn't tell us, I have no idea at all. Somebody, for some reason, wanted that aeroplane to land. And we did.
0: Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. When you fill up at the specially marked giving pump at participating Shell stations, it's not just your engine that benefits – A portion of your purchase will be donated to a local children's charity at no additional cost to you. Fill up today for a good cause by
3: looking out for the colorful Purple Giving Pump, an easy way to give back and drive positive change for
0: children in local communities. Shell is turning empty tanks into brighter futures. It costs nothing extra, but it can mean everything.
6: This episode is brought to you by Kraken Pro. Good trades travel fast. Kraken Pro is a powerful crypto trading platform built for lightning fast trades with real time analytics and more. Head to pro.kraken.com and trade like a pro. Not investment advice. Crypto trading involves risk of loss. So, Flight 149 landed in Kuwait. Immediately, something slightly odd happened when Clive Earthy opened the door. He was met at the steps of the plane by a mysterious stranger
3: a gentleman in uh, uniform with a a stick under his uh, armpit and said hello sir, I've come to meet some VIPs from your flight and can we get them off straight away please? He said to me you are running very very late and I said yes that was our technical fault at Heathrow. I thought because I had a Royal Kuwaiti member in the first class I assumed it was the Kuwaiti person who was the person he was referring to. However, when I said, oh yes, I shall go and get him, the answer was, no, 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 no. There should be about eight gentlemen in the party. Then the penny dropped and I realised who he was referring to. I contacted my purser at the back of the aircraft... I told them to get the men up quick. They were off within a few moments. The group of men
6: were whisked off into the night. But who were they? And who was the mysterious stranger? Without the delay at Heathrow, the men wouldn't have made it onto the plane in time. The decision to fix the air conditioning was a pivotal moment. Clive and his crew then handed over to the next team and headed off to their hotel. The passengers had a bit of downtime while the plane was refuelled. These were the days when you could stay on board while the plane was being refuelled, and some of the passengers stayed, others got off to stretch their legs. Here's Gregor Schatz. Okay, refueling stop. I didn't think anything
5: strange. Uh, And then I was one of those who did go out and walk around a bit. And um, so, yeah, I remember like just walking around. It was was almost deserted, right? I mean, it was like 4.30 in the morning as well. So I didn't think that was strange either. I thought I was probably very, very few flights right now. So, so far, I still had nothing. I was not suspicious of anything.
4: It felt really eerie in that it felt like an empty airport and we were the only ones there that had landed. Because you always see some other airline, there were none. And, and it was like a ghost town.
5: I think the first moment of noticing something was wrong was when after, I think we spent, it was meant to be an hour, they said, and then come back and, you know, to come back to the plane. But then after an hour, they were still not ready or something, and then we were waiting and what's going on until an official uh, guard in uniform came over and announced to a group of us sitting there, waiting, uh, and said, "Q8 uh, Airport will be closed for the next two hours." And we all looked at each other. Okay, why? Uh, and we tried to ask him. And he literally, in front of us, turned and ran. That was really strange. And I was like, "What is going on?" And um, yeah, and then we just stood there. And then people were, you know, sort of talking and started, you know, discussing what could be the issue. And well, in the Kuwait airport, there were the huge glass windows overlooking the runways, and I remember standing there and people then saying, "Oh, well, you know, there was some problems actually with the Iraqis build up on the border, and uh, and they've invaded, and uh, or they've maybe even invaded, or they, they, there's, there's definitely issues with Iraq there, and you know." And I remember asking, uh, "Oh, yeah," and then so then we're standing there and just sort of discussing this, but I wasn't really that worried. It was still a bit strange. But then we saw Iraqi planes come by, the military planes, and start bombing the runways. And that's when my jaw dropped, and suddenly it was like, oh my goodness, what is going on? That was, that was really the moment where you realise, oh my God, this is not my the holiday I had hoped for, and uh, you kind of start this first sinking in of, oh my God, I'm, I'm really in the wrong place. I, I really, something's going drastically wrong here.
4: The next thing we saw was... From two opposite sides of the aircraft. There were two jets that came swooping down and then swooped back up again. And then we just saw something fall. And the next thing we saw was just we just saw some sand come up. You know, you know, the debris come up. And before we knew it, the passengers that were in the aircraft were screaming and rushing out of the aircraft. And we're standing there going, oh my god, what the hell's just happened? My brother came running out, and we sort of shouted out for him. We said, we're here, we're here. And um, I said, what happened? I said, did you hear that noise? He goes, did you hear that noise? I said, we heard that noise. We saw what it was, you know. And he said, the aircraft was shook.
6: What did you think then? You've got off the plane, he's run off the plane, there's screaming, there's bombing. Did you think that's the Iraqis? Did you know what to think?
4: So... It was funny because after that had happened, the next thing we saw, and I don't know if they were Kuwaiti military, I have no idea, but there were people in uniform running around at the airport, and I don't know if they were Iraqis or if they were actually Kuwaitis, even till today, I still don't know. All I know is that I saw a couple of them running, and they had rifles and stuff with them as well, but they're running and i'm I'm like I said to my sister, something's happening. That's when everyone then started talking about the fact that, oh, did you see the news? Did you see the news on board? And everyone just thought, I think everyone just froze because we thought, oh my God, it's true. It's happened. It's happening. It's happening right now. When the pilot was saying things like, oh, you know, we just have to check that we can actually take off again, it was almost giving us that level of hope that we could, we were going to leave. This was just a a little hiccup and, you know, before we knew it, we were going to be back on the aircraft and we were going to take off. Little did I know that the two jets had actually bombed the runway.
2: I wanted to get as far away inside that terminal and as far underground as possible because we're being bombed. And I, I read a lot of military history and, and war history and things. And, and, you know, common sense says you get underground when you're being bombed but we weren't allowed to do that so the stairwell was the, the safe what I figured was the safest place there were sort of concrete um, walls in the stairwell and we sat in the stairwell because the terminal itself was just a wall of glass and I was worried if the plane went up because we there would be a fireball or something but I figured if something came close and it took the glass out that at least we'd be sheltered from the glass what do we know about Saddam Hussein well we know from reading the, new, the newspapers I knew that he'd killed a journalist that he'd gassed some Kurds he'd gassed 5,000 uh, killed 5,000 Kurds in Halabja and was known as the butcher of Baghdad I mean there's three facts that was the only three things I knew about Saddam Hussein oh and that his army was 100,000 people and five times the size of the Kuwaitis and it seemed that it, you know, the delay was, it wasn't was going to be it wasn't going to be a few hours on the runway you know that the airport's being destroyed in front of us it was obvious it wasn't going to be you know a couple of hours and, and here's a refreshment voucher
6: When they first landed in Kuwait, the crew had handed over to the next team, who were meant to take the plane on the second leg of its journey. The original crew then headed off to their hotel. This was before the jets and tanks stormed the airport. Clive Earthy was asleep,
3: when he was woken by a call from his captain. Richard phoned me and said, "Uh, Clive, there's a problem at the airport and there are... Iraqi soldiers all the way around the airport, and they've blown up the runway, apparently. Oh my God, what a terrible situation. Flight attendant Helen Peters
6: was next to receive the shocking news.
7: I'd gone to sleep, and um, I was woken with um, a phone call from Clive, and he said that Kuwait had been invaded by Iraq, and we weren't flying out anywhere that evening so yeah that was the first time I'd heard and then I I could hear it I could hear the bombs and the guns and then it kind of hit you it was just yeah unreal It might have
6: felt unreal but this was really happening Back at the airport things were not looking good Here's Gregor. Not long after
5: that, soldiers came in with their machine guns and started pointing everybody to stand against the wall and line up. And, you know, of course, many people were freaking out and getting nervous.
4: We were told to follow some people in uniform. To, and then we went down these steps and the, And then there was coaches there waiting for us to take us to... They said, we're going to take you all to the airport hotel you know, because we can't have you all lying here. We don't, we're not sure if we can be able to take off today itself. So let's put you all up in a hotel. Let's see what happens and we'll take it from there. I still didn't know what was going on.
6: Passengers were herded onto crowded buses and taken to the nearby airport transit hotel. It was chaotic and there was a constant threat of soldiers armed with machine guns. You could hear the sounds of battle. There wasn't enough space for everyone, and some people were taken to the BA Crew Hotel instead, where Clive and Helen were based. After one of the buses had arrived, and the passengers had got off, a stewardess got back on to check under the seats for any belongings left on board. She sensed movement behind her, and turned to see a smiling Iraqi soldier, an AK-47 over his shoulder, offering her a cigarette. She could see her colleagues had disappeared into the hotel, just 20 feet away, and there was no one else in sight. She shook her head and tried to walk past the soldier, but he blocked her way, grabbed her, and tore at her clothes. At first, no one heard her screams as he raped her. The stewardess tried to fight him off, but the soldier was too strong. Eventually, one of her colleagues came back towards the bus and noticed the struggle on board. He ran forward to try and help, but the soldier punched him in the face. He shouted at other soldiers nearby, asking for help. He's just having fun, one of the soldiers replied. The steward yelled at them until they eventually intervened. The distraught stewardess was led away and the
3: soldier disappeared.
6: The steward immediately informed Clive as the senior crew member.
3: I went off and I found the uh, Iraqi major who spoke perfect English and I explained to him that one of our young ladies had been attacked sexually on the coach from the airport to the hotel. And he, he went straight outside and came back with uh, two soldiers Two Iraqis who were both on that coach, and he asked her to identify the one she did my arab speaking steward also identified the same man the major the Iraqi major uh, and this is a bit that was quite upsetting really he he took a, a pistol out of his holster and went to hand it to the stewardess and said, you must shoot him. To which she burst into tears, absolute floods and floods of tears. I put my arms around her, the poor kid. He then handed the gun to the steward and said, you shoot him. And he also declined. To which the major then said, so be it. And said something in Arabic to uh, another soldier who escorted the guilty guy off back out front and onto the uh, army transport vehicle. And it was a little bit later that we heard that uh, there was a bang and somebody said, that man has been shot. He has been shot. My God.
6: Next time, on the secret history of Flight 149.
4: When you see the helicopters come in off the gulf and they're dropping down uh, the Republican Guard and they're chasing through the streets with machine guns and the tanks are coming through town, eating up asphalt, and knocking down stop signs, it's pretty frightening.
3: My first priority was to make sure Her Majesty's secrets were shredded.
4: All the tanks were pointing Guns at our direction at the hotel. There were just thousands of them.
2: If the Iraqis don't get you, I I will. I don't want to sound melodramatic, but you know, we're in the situation where, as far as I'm concerned, they're trying to murder my partner. Why would they keep just us? They're gonna shoot us now. The secret history of
6: Flight 149 is a crowd network original. It's presented by me, Stephen Davis. It's produced by Samantha Syke. Sound designers by Rory Auskerry. To get episodes without adverts, subscribe to the Crowd Stories channel on the Apple Podcasts app. This series is based on my book Operation Trojan Horse, which tells the full story of Flight 149 and my search for the truth. It's available now in print, ebook, and audiobook. The music we use is from our partners, BMG Production Music. If you want another podcast to listen to, try .com. Series 1 is all about the fascinating world of Wikipedia. Series 2 delves into the world of Reddit, one of the darker and more complex corners of the internet. Search for .com and subscribe now. Thanks for listening.
0: Elevate your company's mental health strategy with Calm Business, a preventive self-care tool your employees can access anytime, anywhere to manage stress and anxiety and sleep better than ever before. And with enterprise-grade management tools and analytics, Calm Business gives you data insights into what your workforce needs to be happier and healthier. Calm Business. Mental wellness in the palm of your hand. Learn more at business.calm.com.